This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Wednesday, September 19th, 2018. From Slated to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. The president gave an interview to The Hill magazine, which is good, because if he had given it to another outlet, The Hill would have just retitled it and run it as their own, cut out the middleman. The Hill has been publishing, I've noticed this, publishing a lot of op-eds from people without portfolios or standing to kind of defend the president. And so now the back is scratched. Here are some things President Donald J. Trump, your president, said, lightly annotated. He said, if I did one mistake with Comey, I should have fired him before I got here. I should have fired him the day I won the primaries. I should have fired him right after the convention. Say, I don't want that guy. Yeah, fire him after the primaries when Barack Obama is still president for another seven months. That is totally how the Constitution works. And by the way, if in your world you'd have fired him, then he wouldn't have been there to open an investigation into, but then quickly close, yet ultimately damn, the Hillary Rodham Clinton campaign. Why am I entertaining crazy town Trump hypotheticals? Next, he said, we probably have the greatest economy in history. They've tried so many narratives with me. That is a lie. 4% GDP growth, pretty good. Bettered a number of times during the Obama administration. LBJ averaged over 5% GDP growth during his time in office. Best quarter post-war, you ready for it? 1950, over 16% GDP growth. The current economy is not the best in history. But what happens is the lie gene kicks in. So Trump has just made one outrageous claim. And from there, he goes directly to, quote, you know, I took that test when I got my last physical. And the doctor said that's one of the highest scores we've ever seen. So the economy is good like you're the healthiest man in history. Okay. Hey, wait a minute. Why is consumer confidence plunging right now? Trump goes on, I was always good at testing, even though he did get into Fordham before University of Pennsylvania. Nothing, nothing against Fordham. He just never mentions that. He says, but if there's anything great about me, it's stability and I am a good manager. Sure, also rationality and humility. And then this part. And I'd just beaten 17 because it was actually 18, including Gilmore. So you know, people say 17, but it was actually 18 you know he was the governor of Virginia, so it was 18. Wow. Here we are, more than halfway through 2018, and he's trying to count the number of candidates in the Republican field. He's getting it wrong, by the way. It was a field of 18, including Gilmore, so it is true that he beat 17. That is true. No one's counting wrong, just him. And by the way, in the Iowa caucuses, Jim Gilmore got 12 votes. Not 12%, not 12 primary districts. Out of 187,000 votes cast, Gilmore got 12. Cruz was first with 51,000. Trump was second with 45,000. Gilmore, 12. So great, Mr. President. We're not giving you credit for vanquishing the dozen votes that backed Jim Gilmore. You know, other got 15 times as many votes as Jim Gilmore in Iowa. Wait! Mr. President, you also beat other. We're up to 19 candidates. You win. You're the winningest, healthiest, stablest savior this country has ever known. And then the president said, and last night I had milk with cereal for the first time. Okay, he didn't say that. That was Kylie Jenner. But if Trump had said that, it would only be the fourth daffiest thing he said in that interview. 
And therefore, somewhere, Jim Gilmore is crying into his beer or Kylie Jenner's Lucky Charms. On the show today, I spiel about a crazy interview by the president of Harper's Magazine. But first, one crazy guy, another crazy guy. Let's go to a crazy lady. Her name's Florence. She blew in from the Atlantic. As the hurricane is now leaving the Carolinas, we call upon a hurricane expert to separate hurricane truth from the hurricane hype. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Hurricanes, I've got so many questions about them. Like, we're told that not one hurricane is a validation or vindication that global warming is taking place. And yet every time there's a hurricane, the talk is, oh my God, this is made so much worse with global warming. As I said on the show the other day, it can be true. Two things at the same time. One is that global warming is real and bad and exacerbating the force or reign of hurricanes. But it can also be true that hurricanes have always been destructive and maybe the ones we're seeing now aren't the end of the world. Let's talk hurricanes Joining me now is Andrea Schumacher. She is a researcher at Colorado State University. For some reason, the nexus of hurricane research in the United States. Hello, Andrea. How are you? Hi. Hi. How are you? (laughs) Good. Uh, Let's start with this. The very first thing I said, time and time again, we are warned now. One weather event cannot be necessarily blamed on global warming. And yet I'm seeing real research go into telling us how much worse global warming is making every specific weather event. What's the deal? Sure. Well, I don't actually think what you just said is a mutually exclusive. Um, I think you're right, absolutely right, and it's a very well-known fact that you cannot attribute any one weather event to the global climate or climate change. However, there are studies that are telling us a little bit about what hurricanes may look like in the future. And I think with every hurricane we have that makes landfall, it not only makes the point of, well, we might see maybe more of these or more intense storms in the future, but we also look at how climate change is affecting coastal communities and the infrastructure and just how problematic that's going to be going forward. Um, Even if the hurricane climatology didn't change, just with things like sea level rise, which is generally not disputed, future hurricanes are going to be a huge problem for us if we don't act. And, And there's nothing to get that more in the forefront of people's minds than to talk about it when we're having an actual hurricane event, I think. Has climate change affected the wind speed of hurricanes? To this date, I do not know of any research that says, yes, absolutely, that has happened. We we really don't have a great data record for hurricane activity prior to the satellite era, which started about in the 80s. And so it's hard to say what's happening right at this current moment and how it's uh, attributed to any kind of climate change. I will say I've seen a lot of uh, differing opinions on what the actual impact on wind speeds would be in a theoretically warming climate even. So um, Mm. 
Um, I think that the physical mechanisms are still sort of out on what we would see in terms of maximum wind speed. But with moisture, if that is a situation we are expecting, which in theory you, you certainly would, that is something that could be extremely dangerous for especially folks in the United States. We've updated our building codes, and so we have a lot stronger structures now that can withstand higher winds. But water is a huge issue in terms of economic um, destruction and loss of life at this point. It's something we should definitely be concerned about. Right, right. So I I ask that because I look at the list of uh, categories of hurricanes, and they don't seem to at all correlate with global warming. But the the Mm -hmm. thing that I do see is the amount of wetness and the uh, severity of rainfall. Is that correlate? Is that affected by climate change? That is something that researchers do believe um, will be affected because uh, as we have warming, um, presumably our sea sea surface temperatures would warm as well, which would cause a lot more moisture to be over the tropical oceans in the atmosphere, which theoretically could create storms with a lot more moisture to feed into them and hence a lot more rain. So that could certainly be something that we would expect to see in a future with warmer surface temperatures. Well, maybe we're seeing it now with Harvey setting a huge record in the United States at about 60 inches and uh, the most recent hurricane Florence going about three feet in some towns in North Carolina. Sure. I'm not even sure, uh, honestly, if those are those systems uh, dumped a lot of rain because they they stalled out and they sat over those areas for days on end. And any Mm -hmm. hurricane in the past that would do that would would similarly be a, a huge rainfall threat. So those cases are really something where it's sort of a mixture of the amount of moisture that's in the air and any excesses and um, whether or not the the track of the storm comes inland and then just sits or if there's another large-scale system that comes and sweeps it out to sea, which is much more common. So I, I have seen – I know there is a recent paper that talks about how the the speed at which hurricanes move may change in a warmer climate and that they might actually slow down and have more of these heavy rain-type situations. Okay, so that is uh, a thesis about how climate change could make the hurricanes more full of uh, wetness and also stalling out in one place at one time, adding up, we might get some record rainfall. Now, is it true that the Atlantic usually doesn't have as wet hurricanes as hurricanes that go over the Gulf of Mexico because of water temperature? How does that work? Sure. Um, Hurricanes in the Atlantic usually have um, a little bit more of a northerly component. And so they tend to move up a little bit higher. And at higher latitudes, we have typically a little bit drier air. Also, um, a lot of these storms at the Atlantic are formed from tropical waves coming off Africa. And in between those tropical waves, you often get big bursts of Saharan air. So air that comes off the, the desert areas. And so it's really dry. And so there's a lot working against hurricanes that are in the Atlantic. Whereas in the Gulf of Mexico, you really don't see that. You just see a lot of nice, warm water. Generally, you don't see a a lot of big disturbances sweeping through to entrain drier air in. So yeah, you can get definitely get some wetter storms in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. So I have a list, someone put together a list of the tropical cyclone point maxima. In other words, where the most rain was recorded. And although I cited Florence and Harvey, Hurricane Maria, which is infamous uh, for other reasons, contributed Mm -hmm. 37.9 inches of rain in Puerto Rico and 
Hurricane Patricia in 2015, 23 inches of rain in Texas, and going down the list, Hurricane Debbie in 2012, that was a Florida hurricane. There's a whole bunch of hurricanes that had their point maxima in Puerto Rico or Cuba or Texas, Gulf of Mexico hurricanes that had a lot more moisture than some of the Atlantic hurricanes. Mm Mm-hmm. That's definitely to be expected. I mean, and once again, um, the amount of rain that falls at a given point depends on how long the storm stays over it, too. And and we see a lot of these Gulf of Mexico systems don't get swept out by other um, what we call synoptic or large-scale disturbances quite as readily. And so you're definitely more likely to see those situations. And similarly, with all those Caribbean islands, um, a lot of the time they've got mountains on them that can really enhance some of the rainfall locally in some areas and cause these really astronomical rainfall values. But what contributes to storm surge? Doesn't wind speed contribute to storm surge, or is it just a function of moisture? Um, Storm surge is a function of wind speed, but also the size of a certain wind field. Um, You don't need really, really strong winds to create storm surge. You just need a really big area of tropical storm force or even a little bit higher. If you have a really large wind field of of those strength of winds, you could certainly have major surge. It also depends on the the coastal properties of a given area. If you have those shallow shelf areas like around Florida, um, you can see a lot more surge than places where there's a steep drop off. So, Okay. So if you add up everything we've said, and I think that I got a lot of uh, good scientific uh, rigor, but also some caution on coming to conclusions where the evidence isn't there yet. What do mm-hmm. you think? What do you think of the line of thought directly connecting climate change to hurricanes? You know, infamously, the Washington Post says Hurricane Florence is coming for the Carolinas. Donald Trump is complicit, meaning because he has uh, policies that don't acknowledge climate science that mm-hmm. he's contributing to the problem. But it's not just Donald Trump. It's a lot of people who want to emphasize that climate change is real and has potential effects kind of skip the potential and say, we're seeing the effects now. Is that premature to say for sure that we are seeing the effects now? Um, I think it perhaps is premature to say we're seeing the effects on actual hurricanes. I think that the science just doesn't support making, drawing any real conclusions about the hurricanes we've seen in any one given season. I think it's really fair to say, though, that we've seen the impacts of climate change on some coastal areas. I mean, just look at, you, you talk to people who live in Miami and they know exactly what you're talking about. They're very aware of what just a small increase in sea level could do to their infrastructure, and you put a a storm and a storm surge on top of that, and you're really looking at unprecedented coastal flooding scenarios. So um, I do believe that it's really important to be paying attention to and to not necessarily just be focusing on its impacts on hurricanes so much as the impacts on our vulnerability to hurricanes as well. Because I follow uh, the meteorologist Eric Holthouse. I don't know if you know him. He used to write mm-hmm. at Slate. And he's – I love his stats, but he – you could say alarmist. He's certainly sounding the alarm. And he tweets things like, events like this – and this is after chronicling the record-setting rainfall in Elizabethtown, North Carolina. Events like this mm-hmm. should force us to directly confront the root issue, climate change and an economic, social, political system – you don't have to comment on that – that perpetuates atmospheric violence towards people who didn't cause the problem. Climate denial is deadly, folks. I mean, can you look at this hurricane and actually come to that conclusion? 
I can definitely look at the impacts of the hurricane and come to that conclusion, which I think is what he's talking about when he refers to the the folks who are taking the brunt of this are not the ones who caused it. Um, there's certainly a huge social disparity on who suffers the impacts of hurricanes. No, but I, what I think he's doing is he's chronicling uh, the record-setting rainfall, and then which he which leads him to the conclusion that climate denial is deadly. Mm-hmm. What I would comment on that is I absolutely think that the the record-setting rainfall is something that we should be sensitive to as a very real possibility with climate change. And we can speculate that in the future we're going to have hurricanes perhaps more similar to this type of hurricane that we're seeing in this given season. This is sort of giving us a proof positive. This is giving us like a real world lab of what these storms would look like if we did have more of these big heavy rain producers in the future and how we need to not have our heads in the sand and we need to prepare. Um, And and a lot of that has to do with doing things to uh, increase our own um, resiliency to, to hurricanes. Okay, last question. Um, we're not we're not quite done with hurricane season. Um, before Florence hit, I heard twenty eighteen wasn't going to be that bad. What's it looking like mm-hmm. to you? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a tough one. I mean, we're already we're we're past we're right into the getting into the peak um, time of the season. So we certainly don't expect it to end anytime soon. Gosh, I think the last trop- five tropical cyclones we got were all in the span of, of a few weeks. And so um, it's hard to predict that kind of a boom. Um, the Atlantic has been pretty quiet the, the whole rest of the season, and it's quieted down again. Uh, I think the sea surface temperatures being a bit lower than average is going to continue to hinder things. And a lot of um, dry mid-level air in the tropical Atlantic is also going to hinder things. But after the last three weeks, it's really hard to to shut the door on this season. Okay, I did say last question, but I just wanted to know, a few years ago, yeah. there was Tropical Storm Andrea, which uh, hit, uh, I-, I think, Florida. Did you want that to be a hurricane, or were you fine with it just being a tropical storm? <laughs> I was fine with it being a tropical storm. Um, honestly, if, if it's not a major hurricane, it means that that name's going to come back in six years as well. So oh. I get a constant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they don't retire it, so... <laughs> Um, but yeah, being the A storm, I almost never get anything bigger than a, a tropical storm or even a subtropical storm. So um, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> yeah. Andrea Schumacher is a research associate at the Cooperative Institute for Research in the Atmosphere at Colorado State University. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And now the spiel, listeners, friends. I don't want to be your one-stop shop for the bludgeoning of John Hockenberry. I really don't. I said my piece about him on The Gist. I wrote a piece about it in Slate. And I figured that would be it. The former host of Public Radio's The Takeaway, who was fired for bullying and was a documented sexual harasser, wrote an essay in Harper's. I pointed out a couple flaws in the essay. Let's move on. I believe the firing was proportionate to his misdeeds. His transgressions were bad. I will say this, actual rapists like or alleged strongly suspected rapists like Harvey Weinstein are worse. People are maybe thinking that other people have a hard time understanding that an actual Harvey Weinstein serial rapist is worse, but that doesn't make anyone who's less bad 
than Harvey Weinstein good. I don't, I don't have trouble with that concept. I know you don't either, but I think the publisher and president of Harper's might think you do. Harvey Weinstein, multiple criminal charges faced. John Hockenberry, no criminal charges, noted. If John Hockenberry didn't try to rehabilitate himself with a long essay in Harper's, I never would have mentioned him. And let me clarify, it wasn't the fact that he attempted an essay to rehab his image. That's fine. It was the execution of that essay. I have noticed this trend. A man apologizes. He has been some, somewhat or somehow disgraced as part of the Me Too movement. He offers an apology. It might be good. It might be bad. But there are a lot of people out there who do not accept his apology. Sometimes they write essays about it, lots of times tweets. And sometimes not accepting that apology, sometimes it's a good point. Sometimes the point is more centered on, well, forget the words you were saying. I don't like the thing you did. I understand we're still appalled by your misdeeds. That's one phenomenon. That's not what was going on here. The reason I talked about Hockenberry's Harper's essay wasn't so that I could say that his apology shouldn't be accepted. It was to point out that he did not offer an apology. Not really. When you call your accusers cowards in paragraph one, you are not apologizing. So John Hockenberry and John Gomeshi came out with pieces a few days apart. These are uh, public radio hosts who mistreated women. Gomeshi's was a better piece of writing, but he was also responsible for worst actions. That ran in the New York Review of Books. Today, the editor of the New York Review of Books was fired. The publisher of Harper's, where Hockenberry's essay ran, was on the CBC radio show The Current yesterday. Just as Hockenberry's essay in Harper's was more of a mess than Gomeshi's essay in the New York Review of Book, the editor of Harper's offered a less defensible rationalization than the editor of the New York Review of Books. And remember, let's recount, that guy was fired. So the host of the show in The Current begins with the proper first question. Why did you give Hockenberry the forum? That is not the question that Rick MacArthur wanted to answer. Well, before we go there, I'd like to uh, inform your readers. I mean, excuse me, I'm thinking about my readers, that Mr. Hockenberry is in a wheelchair, which is something you really ought to, he's a paraplegic. So uh, that does inform the piece. To which the current host, Anna Maria Tremonti, quite properly asked. He's a paraplegic. Yeah. What does that have to do with the fact that he was accused of sexual harassment? It, it's, does hard that to get out your, it's hard to get out of your wheelchair and attack somebody. I think that's one thing your, your audience should know. Whoa. So when Hockenberry cited his wheelchair over and over again in his defense, the way he also cited his impotence, I just took it as a desperate and angry man without any compelling arguments to support himself, being left with just attempting to deflect or garner sympathy. But what I, what I see what was really going on is that Hockenberry was encouraged by Harper's itself and therefore ill-served, no? They thought it was a good defense of harassment that the harasser doesn't have the ability to physically assault the victim. But here's the thing. Hockenberry did physically accost his underlings. New York Magazine reports of a producer asked by Hockenberry to come back to his hotel room, and she does, only to have Hockenberry, I will, I will read her words to you. He came up to me, he put his arms on mine, and kissed me. Then he said, I love you. We've always had this special thing. I pushed him away and said, this cannot happen. Another underling talked about how Hockenberry would touch her legs and her hips and her butt. And the suggestive remarks to the interns and all the young staffers who served 
him as the program host. And then, of course, there's the fact that if we put aside all the sexual innuendo, he would say it's romantic innuendo. It doesn't matter. If you take all of that away, him trying to be romantic with his interns, aside from that, he's a giant asshole. And that is what WNYC's internal report concluded. No one wanted to work with him because he was hard to work with for many reasons beyond the sexual. So Rick MacArthur of Harper's Magazine thinks John Hockenberry is John Val John Hockenberry, guilty of only wrapping his arms around a loaf of bread and saying, I love you, to feed his family. There is an inability on the part of Me Too and a lot of people to distinguish between a Harvey Weinstein who is physically aggressive an accused rapist, and somebody like Hockenberry, who uh, showed bad judgment, he says, and made uh, awkward passes well, well, okay, but Mr. From, Hockenberry- from, from his wheelchair. Harassed from a wheelchair? That can't happen. And notice that Hockenberry is put out there as the opposite extreme of Harvey Weinstein. But this is not true. He is not the opposite extreme. There are a lot of other men who have been caught up in Me Too who maybe didn't do anything. Or there's Aziz Ansari who perhaps really did transgress on that date as detailed by the anonymous woman in the online magazine. There was Dan Harmon, who crushed on a female on his writing staff, and that was wrong, but he apologized, and she accepted the apology. Then you have guys like Ryan Seacrest, who were accused of inappropriate behavior with his stylist, but there was a big investigation. He was cleared. I don't know if that was justice served, but... It doesn't seem that Hockenberry is on the far extreme end of having done nothing wrong. There's Glenn Thrush at the New York Times. He's still at the New York Times. He was accused of getting drunk years ago while at another job and kissing some woman who didn't want to be kissed. And Ryan Lizza, we don't even know what this guy did. He was let go from the New Yorker and now he's at GQ. We don't know the real truth of what all these men did, but I would say all of them were better examples of the quote-unquote benign sexual harasser, much better examples than John Hockenberry. John Hockenberry was the boss, or at least the most important, on a well-staffed radio show who would touch his female staffers, who would flirt with a lot of female staffers, who would make his female staffers very uncomfortable. He would hector co-hosts. And oh yeah, let's get back to the fact that he was a huge asshole who the staff had to work around to get the job done. He's not the extreme end of Me Too. Rick MacArthur, Harper's president, the man who commissioned the essay, wants you to believe that this is the case, wants you to believe that all Hockenberry did was a misdemeanor, but it's not true. Listen to MacArthur at another point, put Hockenberry on the mostly harmless end of the harasser spectrum. As I was saying, uh, lumps together the guy who looks at you funny, looks at you cross-eyed, and the guy who attacks you in your, in your hotel room. Okay. Ironically, Hockenberry did, if not attack, then accost a female underling in a hotel room. Hockenberry's actions, while probably not a literal crime like Weinstein's, do constitute deeply inappropriate acts. It's bad stuff. You know what it is? It's textbook sexual harassment. And the fact that MacArthur is not understanding this or downplaying it or trying to distract you tells you something about him. Eventually, the interview with the CBC took a bizarre turn where the host, who really was only asking excellent questions, had to handle this charge from the guest. And there is something in the tone of voice I hear, in your tone of voice and in the tone of voice of the other person who was on the show. It, it, it rises to the level of Soviet-style re-education. Ha! Anna Maria Tremonti, the Nikita Khrushchev 
of Canadian broadcasting. You're listening to the CBC, and this is Gulag Today. I want to be done with the Hockenberry story. I do not think his Harper's essay worked. I don't want to give him any more attention. I think it might contribute to his sense of martyrhood. But I just thought that Rick MacArthur's comments and that interview could not pass without comment, even though I realize I come off like Pol Pot of the Khmer Rouge. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader are the GIST's two producers, three if you count Jim Gilmore. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She's kind of taking a Soviet tone there. Nah, not really Soviet, more late Menshevik, yielding into the Bolshevik era. It's subtle, but you could hear it. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, who would like to mention that there are three things that we know about Kylie Jenner's parent, her famous parent. One, winning a decathlon gold medal. Two, becoming Caitlyn Jenner. And three, Wheaties, a cereal that is delicious with milk. The gist. It's like Tony the Tiger's son having never uttered a superlative or the offspring of Sonny. So let us say the son of Sonny, the Cocoa Puffs cuckoo bird, never showing a single sign of impulse control. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.